Amen. If you would please be turning to Isaiah 43. This morning we'll be continuing in Isaiah 43, but there's a couple things I wanted to, to go back and look at. And so we're going to be looking at the interaction between the Holy One and Israel. And last week we looked at the Holy One who redeems Israel. And I managed to get all of them all on one slide. Um, God created Jacob. God re redeemed Israel. He called Israel. Israel belongs to him. God will be with them. He won't forsake them. The Lord is Israel's God, and so there's a personal relationship where they also claim him as their God. The Holy One of Israel is their Savior. Israel has been precious in God's sight. God has loved Israel. God is with Israel. God created Israel for his glory. God formed Israel. God made Israel. And so all of these things were packed in just seven short verses. And the ones that are with an asterisk at the end are ones where there's a similar promise in the New Testament to the church. And so those that aren't in the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, which is a majority of us, Gentile nations, we belong to the church. And God has just as much redeemed us and loves us, and we belong to him. But it's not the promises in Isaiah that apply to us. It's the ones that he gives through the epistles and through what we find in what's called the New Testament in our Bible. And we've covered some things in previous verses. In fact, uh, I do need to go back and, and fix one thing. When we covered the verse that had to do with Israel not being perfect, but yet the word perfect was in the verse, I mentioned that I went and looked at other translations, and I also mentioned that uh, a Strong's Concordance gives you the ability to look at a specific word, what it is in Hebrew, and then translate it in Greek and English. But one thing I didn't mention was the fact there's also commentaries. Now, you've got to be careful which commentaries you get, but some of those commentaries are very helpful in understanding difficult verses. But the truth be told, if it's a difficult verse, a lot of times the commentaries skip over it too. And so you find that they can be helpful, but then other times their helpfulness is limited. Well, last week we covered one other verse that I wanted to point out something with. It says, For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Now I, know, I noticed in there two words that I've underlined. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. And then thy God, which was capital G, small o, small d. And so I put them on a slide and I was wondering, what is the difference between Lord with all caps, God with just the first letter capitalized, and then Lord with just the first letter capitalized? Anyone know what the difference is? 
Greg? All capitals is in uh, King James is where it's Jehovah. Okay. So Greg has, has been taught like me that in the King James translation, I can't say for all the others, I didn't go research all of them, but if you take each one of these words, the first one, all caps, is referring either to the name Yahweh in Hebrew or the name Jehovah, which is what we would normally use. And so all caps in the King James is the proper name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. What about the G-O-D, whether the first one's capitalized or not, what, what word is that? Because the King James translators basically did this for a reason. They give us a hint as to what's going on. Anyone know what that one is? Yes, Elohim. And it could be E-L or Elohim. Um, I can tell you that if you talk to a Jewish person, if they're Orthodox, they won't say the name Elohim. They will substitute H for K so that they don't use the name of God in vain. And so they'll say Elohim instead of Elohim. Um, I think it's important we reverence God's name and we don't use it in vain. But changing the letter kind of changes the name in my book. And so the King James translators wanted you to know the difference between when the scripture reads Jehovah and what it reads Elohim. What's the last one? Okay, Brenda, go ahead. The I am on the word means it's a plural word where you get the principal aspects of God, like cherub, singular cherubim, it's a plural. Okay. It's kind of a cool thing. My, my wife is the word scholar, not me. And so I really appreciate her saying that because I was aware of that but you know I just don't follow into those things where she she really checks out the words pretty thoroughly I'll show you the words in just a minute the last one Lord where it's capital L and then all small letters is Adon or Adonai and many of us have heard a song with Adonai in it um, and that means Lord or Master um, his ability to rule. And so the King James translators give us a hint as to which name we're really dealing with. In the Strong's Concordance, and this is Yahweh, the self-existent or eternal name for God, and we would say it Jehovah many times, but Yahweh and Jehovah are the same. This is El which Brenda already mentioned is singular, and then Elohim, which notice right after the word is the word plural. Um, it's also referring to other gods or other deities uh, that man has, has made, but there's only one true God, and that's emphasized in Isaiah. And then the last one, I just put the singular version, you know, which is basically that he's the sovereign ruler, lord and master and owner. And so I thought it might be helpful to you to know what's 
in the King James because a lot of times until someone shares that, you're just reading along and you see the Lord Almighty or the Lord God, thy God, and you don't realize that there's two different names there. And so that kind of highlights that. With that being said, just to kind of give you an idea as to what's been going on in the book of Isaiah, there's these two different thoughts. Isaiah is beating the drum over and over again. You need to trust God. God will save us. We need to trust God. Well, the opposite of that is trusting idols. And I thought it would be interesting or at least a good intro to this next portion because, again, Isaiah is talking about idols. The reason is, is the people keep forsaking God and going to idols and trusting idols. And so in this, I just have a few verses that tie to each one. In Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God, and there's the Lord with caps, and thy God with a capital G-O-D, so it's very prevalent through Scripture. But thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And so that's part of trusting God is that you grow to love him, and it should be with our whole being. The other thing is when we trust God, we're going to do what's right. And there's a reason I emphasize this. Deuteronomy 13, 18 says, When thou shalt hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, to keep all his commandments, which I command thee this day, to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord thy God. When we love God, we're going to want to keep his commandments. And we're going to do what is right in God's eyes. And you're going to see in a moment why I've picked that verse. Um, it's very important that we focus on what God says is right. Um, in our society, we have seen a whole lot of things that used to be declared wrong and sinful. All of a sudden, to speak against those is now considered wrong and sinful by some people, not by our Bible. Our Bible didn't change, our God didn't change, but our standards in our country have changed. And then there's peace, Romans 26, 3, and it says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, and I like the last phrase especially, because he trusts in thee. If we want peace in our life, in our heart, the only way is by trusting God. And so Isaiah has been beating this drum, even though I didn't pull up the references in Isaiah, he's been telling them, trust God, trust God. And right at the beginning of Isaiah, he basically levels a charge against Israel that they have forsaken God. Isaiah 1, 28 says, And destruction of the transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and they that have forsaken God, the Lord, sh the Lord shall be consumed. And so the warnings right at the beginning of Isaiah, if we forsake God, we're going to be consumed. When we were studying Judges, there was a phrase that 
came out. And it's repeated twice in Judges. I just put down one reference, 21.5. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Notice the contrast between Deuteronomy 13.18. When we're trusting God, we're going to do what's right in God's eyes. When we forsake God then we do what we think is best. And I put it that way because Judges says did what was right in our own eyes. Well, that's us basically defining what we think is right and wrong. And it's usually what's best for me. That's the focus of trusting idols and trusting self. And then last, the contrast. And I had mentioned this when we started the second half of Isaiah, there are three sections in Isaiah, and two of them end with, There is no peace, saith the Lord, unto the wicked. And so Isaiah has been confronting his own people with, Are you going to trust God? Or are you going to forsake God and trust idols? There's no middle ground. And we found chapter or two back there was a focus on the fact that Isaiah was bringing up these idols and he brought them up in a, in a very interesting format it was somewhat of a court scene and that's what we're going to find he does again today in, in these verses we'll be starting in verse 8 through 13 before we read it, I just thought I'd kind of introduce these verses with a comment that years ago, how many know who Adrian Rogers is? Okay. How many have ever heard him in person, not on the radio, but in person? Okay, there's about four or five of us. Okay. He was a very dynamic preacher. He still is on the radio, but he's with the Lord now. Um, I only got to sit under him for a short time, but he was visiting back in Brevard, and a couple of us went to hear him. And he actually had a sermon that I remember. Now I'll remember parts of the sermon, but it's rare that I remember the whole gist of the sermon. Um, Maybe you're a person with a photographic memory and you remember everything you've seen or heard, but not me. But this one captured my attention. This one, Adrian Rogers, basically set the stage by reading the verses about Pilate trying Jesus. And he said to those of us in the congregation, tonight you're going to be the judge and we're going to hold a trial as to who Jesus is. And he went through various sections of the Bible, when the angel spoke to Mary, when the centurion saw the death of Jesus, and there were probably about five or six different ones that he quoted from Scripture to say Jesus was the Son of God. And then at the end, he said, are there some in the congregation today that would like to bear witness to who Jesus is, and two or three people in the congregation spoke. 
it was very moving because he basically had all of us thinking, what if we were in Pilate's shoes? What would we do with Jesus? Would we believe him and accept him? Or would we do like Pilate, which a lot of people do, which is make a decision by indecision? Well, I'll wait till tomorrow. Pilate did it by saying, I find no fault in him, do what you want, and washed his hands. And interestingly enough, there was someone that I worked with that was an Iranian man, and I believe that sermon was one of the starting points where I think he eventually got saved. Um, I didn't keep track of everything with him, but I know that after he heard Adrian do that, that it pretty pretty much excited him. There were a lot of things that he was having to start to address with what he had been taught and what his beliefs were. Isaiah is basically doing the same thing in writing. Same thing that Adrian did in a message and his preaching. Isaiah is doing here. And so let's read this passage and then let's take a look at some of the things that that make me say that and why also some of the commentaries have, have pointed it out also. Verse 8, it says, Bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together. Let all the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this? And show us former things. Let them bring forth their witnesses, that they may be justified, or let them hear and, and say, It is truth. Ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant, who I have chosen, that ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside thee, beside me, there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved, and I have showed, and there was no strange God among you. Therefore ye are my witnesses, saith the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? Let's see. I think I read enough. Yeah, down to 13. So verse 8 is kind of an interesting verse. As we look at that, it's kind of, in my mind, as I think about our legal system, which may be somewhat different than what it was in Isaiah's day, the legal system starts, the trial begins, and usually there's a number of participants, and some of them are summoned. They're called to appear in court for one reason or another. There are descriptions of several groups here that are to be in attendance in this courtroom. And the first one is the blind with eyes, they're called forth. 
And I'll actually put the first two phrases up there. There's death with ears that are called forth. Who are these ones that are being called to the courtroom that are blind with eyes and that are deaf with ears? Okay. The idols are that way. In fact, um, there's a passage. I'll give you the, the reference. The, the reference is Psalm 115. I'm looking for the reference. I thought I had it written down. But Psalm 115 basically highlights these idols and basically highlights the fact that they have a mouth, but they can't speak. They have eyes they can't see. They have ears they can't hear. And it goes on that way. Now, one of the things that I was looking at is the context. Who else would be called blind with eyes? Yes. Israel. Okay, Israel, his people. And so there's definitely a two lines of thought that could happen here. Because this is in court and because it's in the context of him talking about his servant, uh, when I read these two, my mind went to Israel, his servant. And most of the commentaries tend to agree with that. But they do point out the fact that the idols also are blind with eyes. They're deaf with ears. But in the context of this courtroom scene, this is most likely his servant, which he's already told us he's got a blind servant. <laughs> he's got a deaf servant, a messenger that he's sending. And so we're going to look at what they're saying in just a little bit. But the context, I believe, would lean and support more the idea that this is Israel. Who else is called to this courtroom? Okay, all the nations. So the nations are gathered and the people are gathered. Okay. And then there's another group that's mentioned. But it's mentioned by what they're supposed to do. Who else is being called? Okay, there are going to be witnesses. But this is where... Okay, definitely it mentions specifically Israel, my servant. And, and so if the blind and deaf apply to that, the idols are stu still there, but they're, they're phrased by a question. Who can show this and what has happened? And the this, I believe, is God's referring by inference of the previous trial which was several chapters ago, he's basically saying, who can tell the future? And who can tell what happened accurately concerning history? And he's, he's basically, with this question, 
singling out the idols because that's what the nations were trusting them to do, trusting them to kind of secure the future as far as if they went to war, they would win the war. And God's saying they can't tell the future. And in the previous chapters where he he brought out the trial, he brought Cyrus to the forefront because Cyrus hadn't even been born yet and he was going to be in the future. And so he's bringing them into court and saying, who can do this? Who can tell what's happening and what has happened? And then he also highlights the fact that they need to bring witnesses. Who's going to testify so that we can really prove what is right and what is true? What really happened in history? Now, they can't tell what happened in the future. Only the true God, Jehovah, can do that. And so this is the trial scene. And in this trial, these are the people that have been summoned. And so they're in there. And I want you to picture the idea of what Isaiah is trying to communicate to Israel. He's basically saying, we're going to go to trial. The idols, you bring your idols. Let them tell what's going to happen and what has happened. And all the nations are going to be gathered around because every nation had different idols and different gods. And he said, and we're going to bring in these blind with eyes and these deaf with ears. And I think what he's referring to is he's going to bring in his servant that even though they're deaf and blind, they still were able to tell what God had done, that there were some things that they still saw. They didn't see spiritually, but they definitely saw physically. And so God has them brought into court also. And if you picture God as the judge, and in our courts, I guess, they hit the gavel and they say court is now in session. And so it's brought into session and he's got everyone assembled there. And as it starts, the judge says to the deaf and blind, you're my witnesses. Now, I don't know how you would feel, but if I was summoned to court and not told why, and when I get there, I'm told, you're going to be on the witness stand. It would be a little bit of a shock to my system. In fact, uh, I did attend a court hearing. Uh, it was a DUI, and I was one of the jurors. And at the end of all the information about the case, the judge dismissed me because I was an alternate. They said I could stick around to see what happened, and so I stuck around for a little bit. And after an hour or two, you know, I, I left. But before that happened, the bailiff called my name. And I don't know about you, but you're sitting there, you're figuring I'm just going to be a spectator. And all of a sudden, your name is called. And you're like, huh? What do I do with this? And 
the bailiff said, the judge wants to speak to you. And I'm like, what did I do? You know, were they chewing gum? No, I don't chew gum. You know, and I'm thinking, what could he want to do? Well, all he wanted to do was just get to know me and talk to me. But most of the time, in that case, I was a, an alternate juror, so I knew what my role was. But it still shocked the system to be summoned to talk to the judge. I have a feeling if this was a real scene, the Israelites would be there thinking, oh, I get to watch. That's why I'm here. And then all of a sudden God says, nope, you're my witnesses. Now that brings up some interesting things. If you look at verse 10, you are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant who I have chosen. And so what they're going to bear witness to is as his servant, what has God done? And so that brings us to what is the witness going to bear witness to? Israel is, their ser is his servant and his witness. What are they going to say about God? Okay, he's the creator. What else? Okay, I had had two different things. Sanctuary here. Savior. Okay, that's all right. My hearing's not that good either. <laughs> and someone over here said something. Okay. They know who God is, and they believe God because they're his servant. And so one of the things they can testify to is that they know God and that they know and believe him because they've seen what he's done. They understand who God is because he's been dealing with them, and they've lived through that. That's their experience. This is what God has done. What else can they testify to? There was no God before him. Okay, there's no God before him. Before we get to that, um, actually, that is the next one on my list. I was in the wrong place. There's no other God before him or after him. Okay, and... Um, Verses 11 through 13, and I, I put this in because, like I mentioned earlier, Brenda uh, really likes things about words, and I am not an expert on Hebrew by any stretch, but one of the commentaries pointed out in verses 11 through 13, there are 29 Hebrew words, and I wouldn't know, but they would. They said 12 of those words are in the first person, singular, which is an emphasis on the monotheism of God. So the fact that in these next few verses, roughly, not quite half, but almost half, are a singular emphasis, you know, a singular first person word is an emphasis on the fact that God isn't multiple gods, that there's one God. And so there's no God before or after Jehovah. 
What else does it tell us about God? What are they going to be able to testify about God? He's eternal. Okay, he's definitely eternal. Anything else? No Savior besides him. There's no Savior besides him, which is what Lynette was also bringing up, was the fact that he was the Savior. Unfortunately, I don't have those before the other things that are in there, and so I have held the slide here. I think we've kind of hit at it. Jehovah is the only God. Okay, these other idols aren't gods. They're the works of man's hands. He's the only Savior, was brought up a couple times. Okay, we're going to move a little bit further. They're also going to declare what, or they're going to highlight what God has declared. Notice. In verse 12, God says, I have declared. Basically, Israel received God's declaration in the form of covenants. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There's the Davidic covenant. They were promised land under Abraham. They were promised a king and that his descendants would reign on the throne through David And so they have multiple promises that God declared. After God declared, what else does it mention? He saved. Okay. Israel's been delivered. Can you think of, at the time of Isaiah, how had God delivered them? This is asking you to think about your Jewish history. What do, what do you know about the Jews and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before we get to Isaiah's time? They conquered Jericho. Okay, they conquered Jericho. What else? If you go further back than what Nancy did, what else can you tell me about? When they were... Okay, over here I heard about Egypt. Lynette, what were you bringing up? That's afterward. You know, I get confused too on the timing of things, but slowly I've locked in some of them. So someone mentioned Egypt. What happened in Egypt? Okay, God brought them in, then he brought them out. Okay, he brought them in, which probably preserved their life and allowed them to flourish. But then as 400 years went by, he brought them out. And so he's been saving them and delivering them from things even further back. Anyone else have anything that they wanted to add that wasn't already mentioned? Okay. The land of Canaan, he delivered them from the people there as they they conquered the land. Any other things of deliverance that they would testify to? Doesn't it go back farther than Egypt? They were nothing there for a while. Yeah, it goes back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before, you know, Isaac went into Egypt when Joseph, his grandson, you know, brought them there, but they were spared it's another idea of them being delivered from famine. 
because why did they go into Egypt? Well, they sent the brothers of Joseph to get food. And I think the second time he revealed himself to them and brought them there. And so he preserved them because there were going to be seven years of famine. So God has over and over again delivered them. There's going to be future events which we get to see where he delivered them. And that's where Babylon comes in. Is They haven't yet been captured by Babylon, but Assyria and Babylon are the superpowers of that day. And so Israel has seen and heard. They heard, first of all, what God declared. They then have seen God's deliverance in various ways but they don't recognize it for what it is. And then there's one last verb in there. The word that I was looking for was in that same sentence, but you're, okay. And so it's God showed. And so God is basically showing the future, I believe, with, with this one. He's revealed his plans for them. But... All of us struggle with one word when it comes to what God says and declares and shows. What's that word that we struggle with? Believe or doubt, depending on whether you're looking at the positive or the negative. They also are looking at that. And so God tells them in in verse 12, I have declared and I have saved and I have showed And the other thing that was interesting about that, there were not any pagan gods around when God made his covenants. Now, they were in other nations, but they weren't part of this process. When Abraham and God entered into covenant, did they worship any pagan gods as part of the ritual? The answer is no. When he made his covenant with David, were there any pagan gods involved as far as any worship or anything to do with them? The answer is no. And so the pagan gods, though they existed amongst the Gentile nations, when God did something concerning his servant, they weren't a part of it. They were not involved. And so you see in this verse, it mentions the fact when there was no strange gods among you, the idea is, is when God made these covenants, there wasn't any involvement from pagan gods. They didn't even enter into the picture. It was just Jehovah, Yahweh, that was going to make this covenant with Abraham and then with David and with the Jewish people. And so... Jehovah has made an exclusive covenant with Israel. The pagan gods were not even in the the picture. Someone already mentioned the fact that they also bore witness to God existing before day was created. Uh, Time, what we know and what we're used to, God existed before that. He pre-existed his creation No one else can deliver out of God's hand. I think Wayne brought this up 
Um, you know, the fact that when God sets out to do something, no one can deliver whatever person or nation that God is against. It's not going to happen. The other phrase that's in verse 13 is I will work and who shall let it. What does that mean? Reaction of my first. Okay. When God takes an action, there is no reversing or changing it. Uh, Lynette summed that up perfectly. When you think about it, if we talk about normal human interactions, if Wayne and I disagreed on something, he's probably stronger than me. And so I probably won't win if, if we're going head to head on something, especially if it's tug of war or something like that. But the idea is, is amongst ourselves, we can disagree and someone's gonna win the argument and it's gonna be their way. Um, if you work, Usually, whoever the big boss is, they say this is what's going to happen. Um, you either do it or you find another job, one of the two. When God does something, first of all, there's no equal. There's no one that can even think about challenging what God has declared. Um, now, the good news for us is God at this point is inviting us to basically cease from being his enemy and rebelling against him and accept his son and basically just like Israel being God's servant become his servant and it's a good life being his servant didn't say it's an easy life but it's a good life. Why? Because God knows what's best for us. Now, the downside is, look at what his servant sometimes has to go through. In this world, his servant gets abused. Um, there are martyrs for the faith. Uh, Israel, as his servant, um, we know from the New Testament to whom much is given, much is expected. Well, Israel had the oracles of God. Israel had every advantage because they knew the one true God. They didn't have to pursue idols. And Isaiah is telling them, trust God, trust God. And what are they doing? They're forsaking God and they're turning to these idols that can't do it, that can't do a thing. And so... The trial is between God and the idols. And we've just read where God has said to them, Israel's my witness. My servant is my witness. And so they aren't there to just watch they're there to tell what they've experienced. And it isn't always easy. 
but it's the best thing that they can do, which is to trust God. And so that's the courtroom scene. That brings us to verses 14 and 15. That's probably all we'll get to today. Let's just read those two verses. It says, Thus saith the Lord your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I have sent to Babylon, and have brought down their nobles and the Chaldeans whose cry is in the, the ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your God. And so, God is highlighting to them who he is. What does he identify as key attributes or key key things to help them know who Jehovah is? Who is Jehovah? He's the Redeemer, the Holy One. Okay, he's the Holy One, he's the Redeemer. Okay, he's the Creator. Um... Jehovah is Israel's holy one, and that's kind of redundant with the other one I put up there. I don't know why I was thinking why I put them both twice. And so he's the creator of Israel. Okay. The interesting thing is, when you hear someone say he's their salvation, what do you think of? Okay. There's two ways he's saving them. Okay, one way, which is the way they wanted, is political. Or who's going to rule over them. But he's their savior, just like he's our savior, in that he deals with our sin. And so, when you say that he saved them, Israel, as a blind and deaf servant, is going to mainly look at the idea of political salvation, being saved from these other nations. But in truth, it's both. Ultimately, he will save them politically, uh, but that's in the future at Christ's second coming. But in his first coming, he saved us from our sinful spiritual condition. And so what we have here is the fact that they're going to bear witness to the fact that Israel is their redeemer, he's their holy one, he's the creator, but also, last but not least, he's their king. And so he is going to rule on the throne of David because he is a descendant of David, if you look at his genealogy. And uh, Wednesday night, Pastor Aaron covered his genealogy pretty well. Um, it was kind of funny. Brenda told me afterward that she was tempted to raise her hand and say, could you do that again? Because reading those genealogies uh, is quite lengthy. But uh, it's important to note that the salvation that they're looking for is to have a king that rules and reigns and that they will be dominated by no other nation. But what is probably the most important salvation that he gave is what he did on the cross for Jew and Gentile alike. The gospel isn't just for the Jewish people, but it's for Jew and Gentile alike. 
Well, we're going to stop there. Next week we'll pick up, we'll, we'll reread 14 and 15, but we'll go all the way to, to chapter 21. Any comments or questions before we close? Uh, I had a visitor. One day, a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses came to the neighborhood. And they pulled up this exact scripture right here. It said, Jehovah is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. And, you know, this, this, these verses are great. Talking about whole witnesses, right? They bring up the colors. That's Jehovah there. That's not Lord Jehovah. That's true. That's, it is Jehovah. And he is a triune God. They don't, of course, they don't believe in that. Right. And they don't believe Jesus is God. So we had a very interesting conversation with Dave. You know, they have built whole false religion on these, these key verses. And it's a dispensation, you know, we're in a new dispensation now, we're in a new covenant. They've never, they don't realize that, and, and they are very, very brainwashed. There was a couple of older men, they've been in the land for 40, 50 years, and they have very effectively brainwashed the people. So, again, you know, it's disheartening. Because here they are walking my ears about probably walking a whole, you know, a whole couple of miles full of houses. Um, you know, where do we do? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm hanging out too far. brings up a, a very good point, a couple of good points, really, if you look at it. First of all, he was visited by Jehovah's Witnesses, and they'll take passages like this, and they'll emphasize Jehovah, and they're thinking of God the Father, but it's a whole false religion and false idea. Um, part of the problem is they don't see the deity of Christ. And if you look at what we covered today, Israel, God's servant, God's witness, spiritually, as a, as a group of people, even today, still do not see Jesus as the Messiah, and Jesus is also deity. He's 100% man and 100% deity. Um, that's the marvel and wonder of the incarnation and there's some things that are mystery we accept by faith that God said this therefore it is so because God said it not because we dreamt it up in fact I don't think mankind could dream up this kind of stuff um, it's just beyond us how God shows us and grace and so Greg was challenged, and it's really a challenge that I think all of us ought to, to take. Here's Jehovah's Witnesses, and I remember hearing before, Satan doesn't care what lie people believe, he just doesn't want them to believe the truth. And yet, we hold the truth. 
Our eyes have been opened. God has drawn us to his son, and we know this truth, and it is convicting. If they're that committed to spreading what is not true, how committed are we to spreading the truth? Um, and that's why we've had an emphasis on seeing people we know and love saved. God has to work in their heart first. But he may use us to speak to them, to point to his son. And we need to be ready to do that. And that's why we've been going over some of those verses. I hope they're helpful to you. But God never forces himself upon people. And so our way needs to mirror his way, which is to invite and to share the truth. But we're not responsible for what that person decides. Um, God controls their heart, not us. And so, Greg, thank you for, for sharing that. It is convicting for all of us, I think, the fact. Yeah. And you don't know that God may use that years from now or whenever um, but definitely one of the things you have to admire in the Jehovah's Witnesses, their commitment. But they are like Israel. Their eyes are blind to what is really true. But we got to close. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy that you've given to us and your faithfulness. We thank you for what we see in your word. We pray that we might better know you, better understand what you want us to do as your servants. And Father, we just pray for Israel that you would work in their hearts and bring them to, to a place where when Christ comes again, they'll accept him. We know that's your plan. and We know that no one can, can hold that back. We pray that as we go into the worship service, Christ would be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen.